Our guest today is Dr. Cedric Alexander, who is a law who is a law enforcement analyst uh, for MSNBC, a former president of the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, a member of President Obama's Task Force on 21st Century Policing, and the author of a book called In Defense of Public Service. Cedric, welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me, Chief. And it's great to be here with uh, uh, you and uh, Assistant Campbell, Assistant Chief Campbell. So thank you. Right. Dr. Alexander, I want to give uh, members uh, of the audience an opportunity to learn a little bit more about you. Can you just uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself uh, for our audience? Oh, okay. Well, uh, I'm currently I'm retired. I've been retired actually for the last two and a half years. I mean, when I say retired, retired from a nine to five job. Uh, but of course, in the last two and a half years, I've uh, been doing a lot of training around implicit, explicit bias and leadership training uh, across the country to a number of agencies or departments or whoever may call upon me to assist them with whatever challenges they feel they may have. Uh, prior to that, I was deputy mayor up in Rochester, New York for about a year and a half. Uh, and prior to that, uh, I had spent four years as public safety director in DeKalb County, Georgia, uh, which is a large suburban uh, uh, community uh, right next door to Atlanta, actually, and population is actually larger than Atlanta. Uh, 750,000 residents, very diverse, mixed community with a whole lot of challenges associated that comes with any urban-sized community, but a great community nevertheless. Uh, prior to that, I spent five and a half years as uh, a federal security director uh, for under the Bush administration, where I ran uh, uh, TSA, the Transportation Security Administration, U.S. Department of Homeland, there in Dallas, Texas, for five and a half years. Uh, prior to that, I was uh, in uh, New York State uh, uh, under Governor Pataki uh, at that time, where I served as Deputy Commissioner uh, for Criminal Justice for the state of New York for about two years. And prior to that, I had been Assistant Chief, Assistant chief and chief of police in Rochester, New York. Uh, prior to that, I was a practicing clinical psychologist at the University of Rochester Medical Center uh, in the Department of Psychiatry, where I did um, clinical work, working primarily with families and couples and, uh, and more targeted population being around those in uh, public safety, police, fire, etc. And prior to that, of course, I spent my education Initially, uh, years back at Florida and University of Tallahassee, uh, uh, historical black college and university, and uh, went on to later years to uh, do a master's and also to uh, complete my undergraduate work, actually, and to do a master's, and then on to do my doctorate work at Wright State University in Ohio. So I spent a, a long time. Uh, 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 in in the profession itself, or in around the profession over the last forty plus years, and uh, but my police and career actually started in Tallahassee as a young deputy sheriff in Tallahassee and in Orlando, and I worked many years in Miami, Florida, uh, with Miami Dade Police Department before going back to school 
1992 in Dayton. So that's kind of the uh, quick uh, synopsis of uh, where I've been and what I've been doing. And there's a lot of other things in between that I won't bore you with, but a uh, number of things that have gotten me to this point where I am now. So delighted to be here. And, and we're and we're we're happy to have you here. And I, I just want to get right into it, Doctor Alexander, because we we often hear um, people talk about um, police or reimagining policing. And one of the reasons why we were so excited to have you as our guest this morning is because someone with your background and experience, not just in policing but as a public safety official in in many, many areas. I wanted to ask, first and foremost, um, when you hear the term reimagining policing or reimagining public safety, let's stick with that. What are some things that come to mind for you, given your background and experience? Well, the first thing that comes to mind to me in regards to that question is uh, always think about the history of policing and how policing stood up in this country. And it, it did not stand up in this country, quite frankly, to the benefit of all people. Uh, policing, if you will, in this very fundamental basic form actually goes back to slavery. And even as we go through slavery, those who are responsible to going out, bringing slaves back to their to their owners, et cetera, uh, certainly never played to the benefit of those who were oppressed. Uh, uh, and then we go on through history. Uh, through uh, Jim Crow and civil rights, and et cetera, et cetera. We know historically that police had been used by government elected officials in many cases to keep certain populations of people in this country oppressed, particularly in the South and in the North as well, by the way. It didn't matter what part of the country that you were in, policing was not used always to the benefit to protect and serve everyone. Uh, and so that's the history of policing. And I think we need to understand that in its most rawest form and not overlook the fact that there's history attached to this, uh, to history that follows us up to this day. So if we bring it up to the 20th and the 21st century and the type of issues that we still are seeing today, have we made significant gains around public safety in this country? Certainly we have. Uh, the country that's only 244 years old, <clears throat> if you will, have made significant gains. But we got a lot of more gains to make, and I think we need to be very cautious about patting ourselves on the back as if these issues around public safety and how it affects the lives of everyone, particularly people of color, uh, it's always in the best interest of those people because we certainly have data, and we know that there's research out there that suggests that there is work that needs to be done in the public safety arena. So even as we go through this place where we are currently, we have been here before, even before George Floyd, mm -hmm. uh, even before Michael Brown. Uh, and we can call all the names that have been affected even in the last two years, three years, four years, five years around these shootings that have been highly questionable and questionable and shootings that have continued to create this rift in this country. But something happened post uh, George Floyd that was very different. Our country went into uh, rebellion around it. American people hit the streets, uh, all kinds of people, by the way, uh, black, brown, blue, gray, you name it, everybody took the streets because this was about injustice. And we saw a murder take place 
uh, before our eyes in this, mm-hmm. in this country and our, and our nation and around the world was just traumatized with the visualization of what we saw uh, that occurred on May 25th of 2020. But it also brought to mind for us the other events that had occurred that have, bring, that have brought so much concern and pause uh, around American policing in this country. And then we hear the horrible stories of police departments around this country who pass along racist emails and texts within their own department. We hear about all these things that just continue to grind uh, at the American psyche around injustices, particularly in public safety. So as we are in this space that we're in, in this space at this very moment, where we have communities uh, across this country that have lost uh, a sense of trust and where police departments have lost their legitimacy that have continued to create this separation. And of course, the last administration that was in office uh, there in Washington, D.C., did not help any with any of this at all, quite frankly. So I think that uh, when we begin now to think about reimagining policing to your question, we should do exactly that. Because here's what we do know. What we have been doing in the past is not clearly working. And it's not working for all people in this country. It may work for a few or some, but it's not working for mm-hmm. all people. And anytime that you have a large segment of your community in your nation, in your country, who have issues around public safety, and we can go to and point to those demonstrated issues, we can even put data and science to those issues then we certainly have a problem that we just cannot continue to kick that can down the street. So when we start talking about reimagining policing, what does that look like? Well, I'll tell you what it looks like to Cedric Alexander. And to other people, it may look different. Mm -hmm. And that's good. That's cool, actually, because that's the whole idea about reimagining. We all should be able to reimagine something better, something that works for you and your community and your respective city and state across this country. But for me, what it means is simply this. We have to have good policing. We cannot, and let me be clear about this, Crystal, we cannot defund policing in this country. What we have to do is make sure that public safety is well-funded so that we all have all the necessary personnel, equipment, training that's necessary to provide to us one of the basic fundamental needs we need, and that is to feel safe. It's right up there with food and water and housing. We need to feel safe in our nation. But what the American people also are saying to us is that we want to feel safe, but we also want a police department that's respectful of the needs of our communities. I think personally that we have to take a look at how we recruit, who it is that we're recruiting. We have to go beyond the basic idea of someone's driving record or credit history or four or five references Mm -hmm. that they give to us uh, that are usually people that they know and who speak well of them. We have to go beyond that. We got to go into who is this candidate, quite frankly. What's their history? Where are they from? Mm -hmm. How sensitive are they to differences? Have they been around people from uh, different populations, et cetera? And none of us can help where we're born. Whether we're born in a rural area somewhere in Montana, or we're going on the south side of Chicago. We don't have any control over that. But what we should be able to explore when we hire people to go into public service in this very diverse country that we live in 
we got to look for people who have a sense of sensitivity, a sense of compassion. So we don't see what we saw acted out in many of our streets by police across this country, particularly the insensitivity and the lack of humanity that we saw Derek Chauvin impose upon George Floyd. That is no longer acceptable. Mm -hmm. It was an egregious act and probably the most egregious act many of us have ever witnessed. But of course, there are a lot of stories and tales that are told out there and a lot of concerns that people still have. So we got to recruit better. We got to know who it is that we're hiring. And then we have to train them better. And how do we train them better? You know, and I both, you know, as chiefs, that we don't train enough. We don't train well enough. We go out and we qualify with weapons once or twice a year. That's required by post of your state. But quite frankly, that's mm-hmm. not training. That's qualification. Mm-hmm. That's not training with your weapon, right? On a regular basis. We also know that we have de-escalation training, diversity training, bias training. All these different variety of trainings that our officers are exposed to both in the academy and those that are having this training in service. But we have to find a way to measure the level of their training. And what I mean by that is this. Mm-hmm. If you, Chief, are going to send me, Officer Alexander, to de-escalation training, I need to be able to come back now and employ those skills on the job. That means the supervisors on our jobs are going to have to be present. They're going to have to get out of those offices. They're going to have to go to the scene with their officers. They're going to have to observe and see, here's a domestic call Alexander has been dispatched to. Let me go and just stand back and see if he employed the skills that he was taught doing that training. Because that becomes a part of my evaluation process. And when it becomes a part of my evaluation Mm -hmm. process, then that is reinforced. And how do we use technology to help reinforce that training? Let's go back, Alexander, and pull Mm -hmm. your body camera. Let's take a look at that call you went on, and let me point out the things that you've done well based on the training. That reinforces that positive behavior. Or let's look at the things that you could have done better, right? And we help them to do better so that every call that they go on, the training is, is reinforced. But what we're doing typically, quite frankly, across the country now, Everybody like to yell out, whoa, we went to de-escalated training. Well, that don't mean jack, quite frankly. If you're not employing those skills, if they're not being evaluated, Mm -hmm. and if they're not being reinforced. So we're going and we're checking these boxes. But the reality of it is, what's different, what's better, is not the training. It's the one thing we have to do. If we want to change culture, then we have to build this into the culture. Because we can have all kinds of policies around training and what we have to go through and do. But as you guys know that uh, culture, particularly police culture, will eat policy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, so if we want to change in order to uh, we really have to build change into the structure, into the fabric of that organization. That is some of the fundamental things I think about. But here is the big one. You recruit better. You figure out how to train better. And now we put them with FTOs who are going to be responsible, literally responsible for their training, not just because they want a 5% increase to be an FTO, but because they literally feel a responsibility to train them. Because if I'm that training officer, that young recruit, Every word, 
every tone of my tone, my tenor, my attitude, that young recruit will pick up on how I think about communities I work in, how I feel about people. All that kid, that young kid is going to see it. They're going to feel it. They're going to observe it. It's going to be in my tone and tenor. It's going to be in everything about me because they're like sponges. Think about the first job you ever went on. Any of us, first professional job we went on and how we paid attention to the people who were training us, how we paid attention to our bosses, everything they said, their nuances around people, places, and things. We adopt and we acquire those same attitudes or we decide we don't want to be part of that. You will have a lot of your unions and your FOPs mm -hmm. across the country who will publicly say, well, young people are not going into policing anymore because the way that police are being traded, treated. No, they're not going into policing anymore because of the way that they see us treating other people. Let's talk about that one. And that wow. is a significant piece too. Wow. Because when you think about young millennials, X mm. and Ys that are out there now, who in many cases, me being a baby boomer, some of you being Generation X, these kids have had more exposure mm -hmm. probably to different cultures, sexual orientations of friends and families and neighbors, uh, been around a variety of different people from a variety of different religions, et cetera. They <clears> tend <throat> to embrace differences a lot, probably a lot different uh, and a lot better than what many of us, certainly in my generation of baby boomers and even generation X. So if we bring in right. all these kids, even if they live in Butte, Montana, you ask yourself, well, what kind of cultural exposure have they had? If they got internet, they've had all types of cultural exposure because they can go anywhere in the world and have mm -hmm. friends that you don't even, you and I don't even know about. So the reality of it is, is that we have a different right. kind of young people that are coming into policing today. And we have to train them differently because many of them are not going to stay for 25 or 30 years. Many of these kids are going to come and stay maybe four, five, six years, and they may move on. But one thing is for certain, and we consistently see this anecdotally, they don't want anything extra but to do their 40 hours. And they want to go home and they want to be with their family. And that is not a bad thing. That's right. That is a good thing. They don't roll no. into McDonald's and Burger Kings for lunch. They bring their little Tupperware of fruits and vegetables. You know what I mean? It's just a different generation. It's a different generation. And we have to acknowledge that and respect yeah. that. But we also have to move with that because how they see and experience the world is different. So that means for me as an FTO, I need to be aware of those generational differences. That means for me, when they're assigned now to a squad inside your police department, that we have supervisors that understand we're bringing in a whole different young generation of people who see the world different. Some we're going to have to manage and help along the way. And others, we actually can learn from them, right? But you go back to May 25th, mm -hmm. Derek Shoulder, 19-year veteran. Them two kids that were down at the legs of, of, of uh, 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 George Floyd. One of those kids were four days, four days off FTO. He hadn't even worked a full week mm -hmm. yet. And during that ordeal, mm -hmm. him and his other partner were holding the legs down, doing their jobs. 
where you had a senior officer with a foot on Ford's neck or knee on his neck. And even Lane, Officer Lane, who's now been charged, criminally charged in that event, says to Chauvin, and you hear it in the video, shouldn't we turn him over? And Chauvin very Mm -hmm. callously, without regard for human life or humanity, says, leave him where he is. And this kid, Lane, this kid, Lane, was a recent graduate of the University of Minnesota. And I did work at the University of Minnesota assessing them for the last six months. Uh, right, over the, their relationship with campus police, et cetera, post George Floyd. Mm-hmm. And when I spoke with uh, the chair of that criminal justice department there, they were floored. They were hurt that they saw one of their favorite students there because they knew that he was not that kind of student. But he was a junior officer following and doing what happens in police culture. What do we do? If you're a junior officer, you do not override a senior officer if there's no supervision on that scene. He was a senior officer, 19-year veteran, probably hadn't been involved in their training somewhere along the way. But this kid knew that something was wrong. But Ed and Steele, mm. he did not have the power to do anything any different. I'm quite sure they would today. But here again, you know, when, it, when, when we talk about reimagining policing, how do we change that in our culture as well? Because we got to change yeah. a lot in our culture. In Minneapolis, just like many departments across the country, have to ask themselves this one question, and I'll stop here, Chief. How does the Derek Chauvin uh-huh. survive inside police departments that long without the department itself being complicit in some kind of way? Wow. And I will stop wow. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and, and Chief Campbell, before I pass it over to you, you Dr. Alexander, you, you just unpacked this so well. We can spend probably two sessions just talking about reimagining um, policing and public safety, both internally and externally, as you talked about, because it does begin with, um, you know, a behavioral change that we should expect when we, when we provide training for officers in ongoing evaluation. But to your point, I, I teach at the University of New Haven in the criminal mm-hmm. justice department, and you, you're, you're absolutely right. Students don't, many don't want to get into policing, or, or being dissuaded from getting into policing, not because of the way the public it has been treating uh, the police post George Floyd, but because they're not, they don't want to attach themselves, their identity or their reputation to what they're seeing. They don't want any parts of that. And we have to well, change Dr. that. Dr. Alexander, I just want to Chief say thank Campbell. you for your candor. You know, many people, especially in a position of authority like yourself, from the time I first encountered you, I teach at the Yale Divinity School um, and teaching some of the students, I use some of the materials from when you were in front of Congress uh, testifying, as well as when you were on stage with an author of a book called Ghetto Side, Jill Leopi. And one of the things that you talked about earlier on in your statement today was the fact that policing hasn't always been in this country, 
equal for all people. And a question that you've talked about is that, why is it that in the George Floyd case, why when Derek Chauvin was doing something, those junior officers, the different generation officer who wanted to do something different, ran up into the opposition of an officer who was senior and they felt like, I have to respect that seniority. And and your your last question is so pertinent. How is it that departments um, can allow a Derek Chauvin to survive in their organization for as long as they have? Um, we find that, you know, there's a saying that the one thing that cops can't stand is the way things are and and change. And when officers try to make change, um, they run into problems. And and before I was here as an assistant chief, I was the chief of police for the city of New Haven. And as I started trying to make changes, I found that it was the very senior officers in the organization who were bucking me, saying, no, this is how we've always done it. And my response was, but that doesn't make it right. And so my question for you, because you clearly have been a change agent in the organizations that you've been a part of, um, something that when I'm teaching the Divinity School students, something that was said um, in the book Ghetto Side and, and, and that you touched on was that um, there's different policing in this country. There's over-policing and under-policing. And many dark black and brown communities um, would you say have they experienced over policing or under policing? Um, and especially in light of George Floyd, do you feel like now police officers are stepping back or are they put in this weird position where they don't really know what to do? Well, I think it's a combination. You know, you know oftentimes I'm appalled when I hear the term that uh, communities of police, communities of color are being over policed, right? So we're chiefs. So for us, it's kind of like a double-edged sword. If we go in and try to fix something, oh, it's too many police. If we're not around at all, y'all don't care about us, right? Mm -hmm. So we're like, you know, what am I supposed yeah, to right. do, right? right? So, um, but here's the thing. It's right. the community is responding to not the over-policing of the under-policing. What they're responding to is our inaction and our attitudes and our behaviors in their communities. And that's what happened when you don't create relationships. Because if I have a relationship with people inside those communities, right? If I work to establish those relationships, if I work to establish trust, they will never be able to see enough of me. And at the same time, we're never seen as under-policing because we don't have an issue with going into those communities because that's just a part of what we do. So much has been misunderstood and mistaken and taken out of context. And, and the country is so angry right now. Policing is, officers are confused. They're angry too. And I'm talking about the good officers. I'm talking about those who truly want to make a difference, right? But if we go back to Minneapolis for an example, because Minneapolis is not the only department. But you have to ask yourself, how does the Derek Chauvin survive in an agency like that for so long? And if you go back and you look at the history of some of these agencies, police departments, they've had a long history of having problems with communities of color and their actions in those communities. And I don't give a darn if you put a female chief in there, a black chief, Hispanic chief, 
any color, chief, size, shape, or color you want to. That is not going to change the culture. What is going to change the culture is strong and steady leadership. Leadership is that's going to demand something different, not just from me as a chief, but when I pass it down to you, Assistant Chief Campbell, and you pass it down to everyone in your chain, it is consistent in either your own board or your off board. It's simple as that. It's enough of kissing the ring because of the right. chief. And yes, we're going to go along with you, but it ain't really in your heart what you believe because what Chief uh, 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 Higgins, this is how we've always done it. And guess what? You're only going to be around for a few years and we're going to. We're just going to ride you out. Reality of it is, is that when we come into these agencies as chiefs, and as we prepare to become chiefs, we need to be aware of the fact that we got to change a culture. And I'm not interested in what you're telling me you're going to do. You got to demonstrate to me what it is that you're going to do. And I need to see demonstrated successes, not what you're going to do. Because if you didn't do it before I got here, Unless something was in your way, like your prior boss, but you really haven't showed me and demonstrated successes. And I'm always, uh, 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 always like to hear these guys who say, well, I've been here 25, 30 years. That don't mean Jack, if you haven't doing anything to advance your profession. What does that mean? It just means you showed up. Every day. But what did you do to advance the profession itself? Because the key to any organization, it all rises and falls on leadership. And from the top of that organization to the last person, to the last person, Mm -hmm. it has to be a consistent message that is going to be reinforced. And you got to find a way to measure to make sure that your goals, your objectives are being carried out clearly and effectively. Are you going to have noise from unions? Are you going to have noises from other groups that have a different interest in mind? Certainly you are. But you knew that was going to be tough when you signed up. It's like we knew when we signed up for policing, it was going to be a dangerous profession. We knew that, right? Mm -hmm. You don't go into the Army expecting that I'm just going to go in here, but we may not go to war. No, when you signed up, you knew that was potentially there. Right. So we understand and we do everything right. that we can to protect our men and women and make sure that they're trained well, they're safe, they go out, they use good judgment. And there's an expectation of behavior and a, and a decorum of professionalism that is going to be second to none. But we can't just say that. We have to mean it and it has to be demonstrated throughout the organization. If you want to change culture, it requires hands on. It requires just not writing new policy, but it's how do we affect change in an organization where we weave it into the fabric of that organization. It becomes normalized in our organization. If we're inside an organization where we're promoting good mental health for police officers, then we build that into the structure. We have signage up. Hey, if you're struggling with family issues or financial issues, we build it into the to the fabric of our organization. It's normal. We are human. We're just like everyone else. It is important for those first line supervisors that we promote to understand the importance of the roles that they play with these young recruits. Because when we were young recruits, 
Who did we depend on even more than our moms and dads were our sergeants. If it was a day off, if it was sick, I'm having problems right. with my right. my wife or or whatever it was. Who did we go to? We went to our sergeants, right? And if we had a good one, right. they helped us walk through life. If we had a right. bad one, they didn't help us much at all. But so, so that's why first-line supervision is so important because you guys are not out on the street with your officers every day. But those sergeants are, and those lieutenants need to be, right? And to help reinforce what's trained and to mentor them and counsel them. But we got to make sure we have solid supervisors because what's happening, we go back a little bit here, is that if we want to reimagine police officers, going by recruiting differently, training differently, holding those responsible for training much more accountable, if we're going to pay them extra, and in addition to that, in addition to that, all of us up and down that chain of command are responsible for the messages that we send to our officers. It's in our, it's in our tone, it's in our tenor, it's in our behavior. You can't tell me one thing, but yet I know that if the order comes down from the chief, we all should be wearing hats when we're out of our cars. Well, I'm a sergeant. And the squad says to me, oh, sorry, it's 90 degrees outside walking around this campus. Why we got to wear these doggone hats? You know, the chief's out of his mind and, and the assistant chief is too. And why we got to wear these hats? What a good sergeant was do say this. <laughs> Look, guys, I know it's hot out there, but you know what? This is what we got to do. I understand. You resonate with how they feel, but here's what you don't do. Yeah, well, you know how they are up top. Yeah, uh, it's in your tone, it's in your tenor, it's in your body language. You follow what I'm saying? Because what they've just done to you is undermined uh-huh. and you're directed. But what a good supervisor would do is, hey guys, yeah. I know it's hot out there, but you know what? I got to wear mine too. I know you, you know, but let's just do what we got to do right now and uh, let's move on from Thank you. Doc. You know what I mean? And that's in any profession. That's in yeah. any profession. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, and because those young people yeah. and those senior officers are looking for, okay, uh, we'll do it. But it don't mean they'll like it. But here's what they did. They're being held accountable by their first-line supervisor. Mm-hmm. I can resonate with it. Yeah, we're out here a lot, guys. I get it. Right. I agree with right. you 100%. Right. But you know what? This is the directive. We're going to follow it. So let's move forward. What's the next thing on the agenda for roll call? Right. Hey, Doc. I want to I want to go back to something you said earlier that's so important. We You talked about culture. And, you know, just leading up to George Floyd and, and post uh, the killing of George Floyd, um, a lot of police chiefs are leaving the profession. I want to talk specifically about the campus space. I know you've done some some work, some consulting in the campus space. And I have argued um, with, with, with some of my counterparts over the, the last year that the core competencies for a campus police chief have changed. And 
you know, because many that are, are leaving the profession have, they have their own reasons for leaving, but I've actually known a few that really didn't keep up with the evolution of policing and weren't, weren't accepting of some of the reforms that were being uh, demanded for by their communities. So now uh, institutional leaders, campus presidents and vice presidents are in the position of recruiting and selecting a new police chief or director of public safety for their campus. What are your thoughts on some of the core competencies? Well, in it this would be quite frankly, right uh, Chief, no different than that for a municipal police chief. You need someone, first of all, uh, who meets the fundamental basic credentials. I believe in education. I believe you should have the education uh, that is commensurate with the job that you're being hired to do, quite frankly. I don't feel there's no substitute for that, right? You have to have demonstrated experiences. You have to be someone who understands mm -hmm. the importance of having goals and objectives to help create a mission plan for your organization. You have to be someone who has a business acumen along with an executive acumen. Because even though you walk around with a uniform on, right, you still are a businessman mm -hmm. and businesswoman because you are running a multi-million dollar corporation, if you will, whether it's for 5 million, 10 million, 20 million, or 800 mm -hmm. million, you are responsible for those bottom lines, right? So you have to have that type of executive administrative mm -hmm. acumen mm -hmm. in order to be a responsible chief today. You have to be someone who understands the importance of public engagement. You have to sincerely from here, not just from here, but from here, from the heart, understand the importance of unbuilding relationships in your communities, mm. particularly relationships mm -hmm. that has a long history of mistreatment across this country. It doesn't mean that we tolerate crime. What it means is that mm -hmm. we understand that mm. people who live in many parts of our communities may have a different impression or experience with us, might not even be based on their own experience, but could be based on the experience of a friend could be based on the experience of news reports or videos mm -hmm. or whatever it is that they see. We don't dismiss them that their feelings are not important in terms mm -hmm. of their own experiences. But what a good chief can do is that they, they can resonate and they can help over time change those thoughts and those minds and get people to join with them because you're not just leading a police department, you're also leading a community, whether it's there at your university campus, that many times sit in the heart of a metropolitan city, in this case, New Haven, in the case of University of Minnesota, right there, short yeah. distance from, from where George right. Floyd was killed. You know, you mm -hmm. sit in the heart of those communities. Whatever is going out in those communities, mm -hmm. also, you are right there. There is no, there is no wall that keep people out. So your officers have to be just as smart, just as well-trained, just as equipped, just no. as building those relationships across the mm -hmm. street from your campus, even though it may be city jurisdiction, but it still impacts your university community. Right. Building relationships mm -hmm. and have the wherewithal and understanding building relationships with faculty and students and staff. And understanding this is that on your campus every year, you have young people that are coming from around the world not from just around your country, but from around the world. Some of these kids come from wealthy families. 
Some of these kids come from poor families. Some of these kids come from wealthy families in Europe and Africa and all around the world. You have a variety of people who come to your campus. You have the most diverse population of people probably in any community in this country, including New York City. Think about that for a moment. But here's other thing you think about. How do they see American policing? How did they experience policing in Colombia or in Argentina? How did they experience policing in a third world country somewhere? All they know about police is what they experience. When they see you in a uniform and a gun Mm. and a badge and in those authoritative kind of positions, how they see and perceive us, they're going to already come with that experience, right? And then there's going to be those that come with experience. All my relationships around police, even if it was military police in my country, has been positive. But that may have a lot to do with their pedigree and where they come from in those countries, right? Who their families were, what royalty they mm-hmm. may have come from. Everybody's experience is different. And we have to keep that in mind because you, Chief, mm-hmm. right now at this very moment, one of the most diverse populations on this planet. But we don't think about that sometimes. But we do, and everybody's perceptions and realities are going to be different. And then when we think about those here in the United States, whether they're from Liberty City in Miami or whether they're from Beverly Hills, their experience around police may be different. And this gets reinforced by everything that we see occur every day in American policing that comes across our screen. We are fighting definitely an uphill battle. The greatest majority of police officers out there, I truly believe, are good officers. The greatest majority of leadership out there, I believe, is well-meaning leadership. But if we fail to address those in our organization Mm -hmm. who are not working to the best benefit of us, then we're complicit. Mm. That's me, that's you, that's everyone. But let me go back to your question about chiefs who are leaving the profession. Amen. There are those who are standing up and say, I'm going to take on this issue around police reform. Mm. I'm going to meet the challenge of reimagining policing. And I know it's going to be tough, but I'm in this fight Mm -hmm. and I'm going to stay in it. Rather than 20 years in, 25 Mm -hmm. years in, 30 years in. I'm going to do the best that I can while I'm here. But those who want to jump off because it don't no longer fit their narrative, what I would say to you, is by good written because American policing is moving forward with or without you. And your legacy is going to be your legacy. But if you want to leave, yeah. leave. But for those who want to stay, those who want to make a difference, who are not yeah. just hanging around for retirement, but really trying to make a difference in a profession that you claim you love then we have to be willing to roll up our sleeves because what the American people are saying across this country, holy, not just in black and brown communities, but across this country, we want policing to be different. We want our public safety to be different. We want it to be transparent and open. We want to be part of the decision-making processes about what it is that my community needs because no longer can I just say, well, I'm the chief 
here are your public safety needs. I'm going to divvy out to you. No, the public now wants to sit at the table because on one side of town, they may need right. certain things, but another side of town, they may need something else. Right. But when you have people who are at the table, and I'm talking about responsible uh, 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 community leaders, I'm talking about people who are truly responsible, right? If we have them who are sitting around the table with us, who are taking these issues seriously, they are truly partnered with us. That when we find ourselves in these precarious situations, i.e. officer-involved shootings, it is much easier for us to work together when we have a relationship as opposed to trying to develop those relationships after these events have already occurred. We know policing is not a perfect art or science or whatever it is. It's not. It's a challenge. Wow. We can't prepare for everything. We can't rehearse for everything. But here's what we must do. We must have leadership that understands the importance of education. We can just no longer say, you know what, I want a 19-year-old kid that's out of high school with a, a, a GED. Now, I'm sorry, them days are over. We got to require more educationally, and we got to train better. We got to role model better. We got to pay them. We got to give them good benefits. And if you want to retain them for any period of time, you got to give them good retirements because today, Retirements are not the same as they were 5, 10, 15 years ago. So I'm not hanging around for 1% a year for 30 years, and I'm going to get 30% of a $100,000 a year salary. Ain't going to do it. You understand what I'm yeah. saying? So if you truly believe in good public safety, no. we have to recruit the no. very, very, very best. And we got to compensate them. For it. Because the most important thing that that relates to our own homeland security in this nation is not just at the federal level, it's at the local level, because that's where it all starts. If anybody sees anything, hears anything, and right. responds to anything first, it's going to be your officers. Wow. Right. Amen. Doc, I know you Absolutely. you have to um you have to uh, leave us in a few. So I'm uh, Chief Campbell, if you could have the last question before we close this out. Um, for speaking from your heart. Um, you know, I feel like you've shared a piece of your soul with us and we really appreciate that. And the last question I have for you is what's next for you? You know, what are some positive outcomes you hope to bring about in the next few years? Well, I'm going to, uh, God's willing, I'm going to continue to, to hopefully be a, a positive voice for public safety, for police, and for young men and women uh, like you and the chief uh, across this country uh, to hopefully be a role model that sets some type of example out here in in my space uh, that encourage you uh, to continue to do good things, right? And because leadership is something I hold very close and dear to me because I truly believe everything falls on good leadership. And in this country, we're struggling with leadership. 
in a whole lot of different places, mm. not just in policing, but in a whole lot of different places. And there's always going to have to be those of us who have to be committed to doing the very best that we can, understanding we don't know it all, understanding that we're still learning. I'm learning every day. You know, one thing I learned when I did that assessment at the University of Minnesota, I had a group of kids walk in to meet me. And uh, I went on campus one, once because I wanted to go to Minneapolis just to get a sense and a feel of the environment before I continued my work on Zoom. And I interviewed over 200 uh, faculty, mm -hmm. staff, students over that four or five month period. When I went to that campus back in August, September of last year, a group of these young kids came in 18, 19, 20 years old. And they knew I was a former police officer. They knew I'd been asked by the president to be there, et cetera. And there was a little resistance. Well, how are you going to help us? You're police yourself, blah, 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 blah. And one young lady said to me, she says, I right. think police should just be abolished, period. Just abolish police. It just should be totally gone. Now, being a 40-year veteran uh, and someone who uh, have acquired a certain number of conservative values, which most of us have, right? And conservative cannot be synonymous with hate or racist or sexist or whatever it is today in our society. It should not be synonymous with that. I can have a conservative thought without disliking or hating mm -hmm. anyone. But today, those are buzzwords. Conservative mean you don't like black folks. Liberal mean you do like black folks, right? That's what we minimize some of this language down to. Right. And it's ridiculous, but that's a whole nother story. <laughs> Sometimes it get reinforced, unfortunately, by some people. But when she said to me, we should just totally abolish police. And I took offense to it. And my immediate response was, no, that is not going to be the starting place of this conversation. We're not going to start there in this conversation. That tone and tenor, I responded. And I had to catch myself because the kids were like, oh, snap. You know, we didn't get a nerve with this guy. And they did. But. I, when I stepped away, and we went on and we talked, but when I stepped away, yeah. I had to begin to think about something I'd never thought about before, Chief, is that I got to take my lenses on. Because how they see the world is different than how I see the world. This was uh -huh. an 18-year-old young white female, 18, 19 years old. We just need to abolish the police. And but what I come to recognize later yeah. is that in a perfect society, if people were properly housed and properly educated and, and had proper health care and, 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 and opportunity, maybe we wouldn't need police or maybe we would need minimal police, right? But I had to take off my lenses for a while. Now, the reality of it is, we're not going to abolish policing, nor should I, nor would I ever support that, because we're always going to have bad people in the world. But when I had a second conversation with that young lady, she explained to me what I just said to you. 
is that if this country, if we were doing what we're supposed to be doing as a nation, maybe we would, or maybe we would need minimal police intervention. That's kind of pie in the sky. It's kind of Pollyanna. It's kind of wishful, but reality of it is we're going to have bad people and everybody is not going to be on the same plane. And, and um, that's just the way it's going to be, probably in our lifetime, right? Uh, but what other thing I grew to understand was this, that those young people that walked into that room with me that day who don't care for police, who didn't care for police carrying guns on campus. I heard tons of that. Here's what I come to recognize. Those were the kids who graduated in the class of Stoneman Douglas, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, in a mass shooting. And they at your institution, they're at Minnesota, they're at every institution across this country. These kids don't embrace and see guns and what they mean and all of that in the same way as maybe other people do. To them, guns are an offense. To them, they don't embrace gun control. To them, they don't embrace the Second Amendment. All they've seen is mass casualties throughout the course of their 17, 18, 19 years of age, right? That's all they've seen. So they're reacting to that. But as they grow older, as they become more mature, they're going to understand that, yes, we have to have police. Yes, we have to have ways to protect you and keep you safe. But we have to be able to articulate to them the importance of that. And these kids are smart. They're bright at Minnesota, just like they are at Yale, just like they are at FAMU, just, as they, just like they are at any institution across this country. These kids are sharp, they're bright, they're intuitive, and because they don't say something, don't mean that they don't know something. Because they see everything, they hear everything, and they feel everything. More so than what we can ever imagine. So we're going to always have policing in this country, but we have to reimagine policing in a way that's going to work for the benefit of a community at large. We have to have good public safety on police campuses. We got to have good chiefs. We have to have good uh, 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 chiefs that become provosts in those institutions that have the ability to have overall oversight of public safety. That is where we have to go in the future with American policing on our college campuses because Mm -hmm. you are just as much as a chief. You have the same responsibilities as a municipal police because you are part of that overall community you're just inserted in there as an institution of higher learning but all the issues that everyone else is facing in municipal policing you also face in university policing but do your style need to be a different do your approach need to be different you're dealing with a different demographic population yes you adjust yourself to that but you are aware Mm -hmm. also and you're always prepared of anything could happen anytime, anywhere. You need the same training, same preparation, the same men and women to serve you there as we hire in California or, or New York or anywhere else. It has been great being here with you guys today. I hope some some kind of small way I've been of some uh, help to you. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. In fact, <laughs> Doc, uh, Anthony, if you could just stay on for a few minutes after Dr. Alexander leaves us. We need to unpack this 
we need to debrief after this. Dr. Alexander, we we those of us who are in, remaining in this field, we we do so because we have folks like yourself who are giving back and who are here to support us and to talk to us. And thank you. Great being here with you guys as well. Thank you. We appreciate your time today. Yes. And uh, we we hope to do this again with you soon. Wow. Chief Campbell, let's 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 just do a quick debrief uh, on our 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 conversation with Dr. Cedric Alexander. I mean, I, my thoughts, my initial thoughts are each question that he answered, we can just do a session unto itself based on mm-hmm. his response and unpack that. What, what are you thinking, Chief? I, I think you're absolutely right. And and the reality is, I love that the way you set up the framework for the first question, his response uh, didn't pick up policing where it is now. He went back to the origin. Mm-hmm. And he brought us up to modern day policing. Mm. And even in the very end where he talked about, you know, I love the question about many police chiefs have left policing and what is the job of those who will be a police chief on a campus environment. He laid it out. What is not only expected and required, but he talked about how you truly change culture that you have to be hands-on, that you have to have a heart for people, a heart for the community, not just the community you're serving, but the community wellness. And Mm. I think it was incredible. I think that there's so much to unpack. He gets to the heart of not only how to be a good police chief, not only how to change the culture, but also how to make sure that you have true community wellness. You you know, Chief, we we often talk about listening to hear versus listening to respond. And and then we follow that up with meeting people where they are. And and what struck me was that he wasn't just talking about meeting people where they are, you know, in their community at the community meeting or or on a campus in a dining hall. He's he's talking about for me what resonated was meeting meeting people where they are um, in terms of their frame of reference. Let's think about it. The average college student knows two presidents. Barack yes. Obama was president for eight years, and and Donald Trump was president after that. They can't remember back to Ronald Reagan or Jimmy Carter or Bush one and Bush two. They they don't they don't have that frame of reference. And at the same time, he brought something up that is very relevant. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, in our society, in the United States. Um, guns, mass shootings, that's what they've come up with. Yes. That's what they've come up with. Not, not I mean, gu- shootings inside of uh, schools. Yes. You know? So, I mean, that, that's, that's something that's very relevant. And, and when we talk about core competencies and, and, and chiefs being, and leaders being sensitive to that, meeting, meeting people where they are is much more than meeting them somewhere physically. It's about understanding um, how they came up and where they are and how they're seeing the world in us having to check our lens and being oh. having to take a step back, you know? And I love that part where he said, we have to check our lens and understand that the lens that we're seeing the world through is not, as you pointed out, the same lens that the people coming behind us are seeing the world through. You as a dad, know that our kids who are teenagers right now, they don't communicate the way we communicate. 
Growing up, we want to talk to one another. We call one another on the phone. Now kids don't use the phone for calls. You either texting, <laughs> emailing. You're not making a phone call, and, and because it's a different world. And as even as Dr. Alexander pointed out, he was like, if you take a young person from Dubuque, um, and you might think to yourself, well, what could they possibly know about this culture or about that? Right. He made the great point. If they have internet, they have the entire culture that exists right now open to them. And right. things that we didn't worry about, they do. I didn't worry about shootings in college when I was growing up. That was not remotely on my mind. Um, I didn't mm. worry about shootings in the mall or shootings in church. Guns were not viewed in that way, the way it is viewed for them. And so I think the way he presented things was helping us to understand that part of the culture of leadership as police chiefs and leadership just as human beings who are older than the generation behind us is to understand the world that they're growing up in. It's different. It's a different world. And we have to respect that and understand that if we truly want to have any hope of leading them in a positive way and having partnership with them. Yeah, great. Wow. Uh, great session, Chief. Great it session. It was really awesome. Awesome. Definitely.